Happy Sunday and welcome to the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Um, the corona, the status quo of the coronavirus pandemic right now in many states is not looking good. The situation is just dire. In Utah, the headline, here's a headline from the Salt Lake Tribune, quote, University of Utah Hospital over capacity as the unsustainable coronavirus outbreak continues, end quote. Erin Alberti is the person who wrote this article, she continues, quote, Utah shattered its previous record for coronavirus hospitalizations Friday, and one of the state's largest hospitals said it was forced to set up extra beds because the intensive care unit was full. University of Utah Hospital was bringing in doctors and nurses for overtime shifts Friday to staff new beds after its ICUs, excuse me, to staff new beds after its ICU reached, quote, more than 100% capacity, end quote. That's according to the hospital spokeswoman, Suzanne Winchester. Earlier this week, Utah's Republican governor, Gary Herbert, said, quote, Utahns must wear a mask around others, socially distance and limit social gathering services, end quote. Politico reported on the situation in Utah right now, and the governor told Politico this, quote, our hospitals are getting overwhelmed. The dramatic increase in infections has put the integrity of our healthcare system at risk. End quote. Governor Herbert also said that the National Guard is on standby just in case they need to set up any field just in case they need to build any field hospitals. Utah's ICU beds were 75% occupied as of Friday, which is above the state's threshold and deeply concerning. Yesterday, Utah reached a record high number of, of hospitalizations, nearly 300. Also yesterday, um, Dessert News reported that Utah Republican congressional candidate Blake Moore tested positive for COVID-19. Initially, he and his wife, um, excuse me, initially his wife was positive. Then later on, he and his three kids were tested and they tested positive for COVID-19 as well. In Missouri... Um, cases and hospitalizations there are just skyrocketing. Dr. Alex Garza, who leads the state Lewis Metropolitan Pandemic Task Force, said this during a public health briefing on Friday. It's been somewhat of a sobering week uh, regarding COVID-19 in the St. Louis region. We seem to have retreated from all the progress that we made in September when our admission averages were down into the 30s. Our seven-day average is now back above 40 including seeing admissions above 60 for just the fifth time since we started tracking our admissions data. And while, like I have said before, we don't pay much attention to those one-day spikes, but you can't ignore that number over 60 as well, and it's a concerning number. And the trends, likewise, have, are concerning as well. So not only will uh, that, well, not only is that a high number, but if we continue on with admissions with high numbers, it's a barometer of how much virus is circulating in the community. And we know that those patients will continue to accumulate in our hospitals, so it's very concerning. It's difficult um, when we see these numbers continue to climb as we have seen this week. And our hospital admissions are really a lagging indicator of how much virus is circulating out in the community. Both Missouri and Illinois are setting records for the number of COVID cases that we have. Um, and this is really not sustainable. And the reason why I say that is even above and beyond our COVID cases, we're seeing increased volume of patients within our healthcare system. So these are people that are not COVID-19 positive, but 
other medical and surgical patients are filling up our hospitals now. So that puts a tremendous amount of stress on our staffing and on our ability to take care of everybody. The way to do that, to, or the way to, to decrease that amount of stress is to decrease those number of COVID admissions. And the way to do that is for everybody to wear a mask. Uh, I can't say it any more simply than that. Whether you live in a jurisdiction or not, and as you can see, the majority of those patients are coming from outside of areas where there is a mask sensing, hand washing, not gathering in large groups. It's only if we all do this that we'll be able to prevent these increased, these dramatic increases in COVID-19 cases. Uh, just listening as a podcaster, I'm not sure if you heard this, but I kept hearing some pounding. It may have been by the podium, uh, but sorry for that. Um, that was on that audio clip that we just played for you there. And once again, Dr. Alex Garza warning people to take precautions and wear your mask this year. Excuse me, and wear your mask. Last month, Missouri Republican Governor uh, Mike Parson tested positive for the coronavirus, but this apparently has not changed his leadership. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch writes, quote, Governor Mike Parson has repeatedly refused to mandate mask wearing in the state, although the state health department and federal and international health officials are recommending that it happen, are recommending that masks be mandated, end quote. And despite rising coronavirus cases and hospitalizations in Wisconsin, well, the president visited Wisconsin anyway, holding this huge super spreader rally. Earlier this week, NBC News did some reporting on the situation in Wisconsin, and these doctors are essentially telling people that this is serious. This is serious. Just listen to this. This is Stephanie Gosk. On May 27th, reported COVID deaths in Wisconsin peaked at 22. After that, the number dropped. Maybe the worst is over, some thought. Then the fall hit. We thought we dodged the bullet, but lo and behold, here we are on the 1st of October, and this virus has come back with a vengeance, and we're in deep trouble. On Tuesday, a new state record, 34 reported deaths. The nurses at Aspires Hospital in Wausau bear witness. People are dying every night and it's, it's, there's nothing we can do about it. This virus is just beating them and we're trying, we're doing everything that we can. We've had several people come in here and be very sick that all they did was want to see their grandparents. I'm a grandparent. I would like to see my grandchildren. This is larger than that. Eight months into the pandemic, a nurse in Green Bay worries public support for them is slipping. Seen multiple deaths, multiple days in a row. Um, it's really hard to try to stay positive when the community itself isn't really got your back. They don't believe it exists. They don't see what we see. Health workers repeating the same advice hope it may finally sink in. I ask you as the public to wear your mask, wash your hands, social distance. Please just, just wear a mask, socially distance, do whatever you can not to catch this. Today, a 500-bed field hospital opened to take the strain off the system. It's the same one Wisconsin decided it did not need to open back in May. Stephanie Gosk, NBC News. Dying from the coronavirus is, is, is a horrifying death. 
I mean, when I spoke to Dr. When I spoke to Dr. Anna Stratus on, about the coronavirus and dying from it and her experience working in hospitals during just the worst of the coronavirus pandemic back in New York, when I spoke to her about that last week, here's how she told me, here, here's what she told me about how it is to die from the coronavirus. It is horrifying and it is lonely. Take a listen. I have seen pictures and videos of of people dying in in off in in hospitals uh, from the coronavirus, but I have not physically physically been in that presence or experienced that. As a medical professional, I know that they are alone. Um, they do not have any family members. Is that is that lonely and is that scary? Looking at it from from your point. Yeah, it's a it's a death without dignity. Mm. Um, you know, when I saw folks coming in in April, um, and again, I don't imagine death from COVID has changed at all. Um, folks already were behind the eight ball in terms of being marginalized in society for and, and marginalized from resources. And they would come in with their cell phone and mm. they'd be in the emergency department struggling to breathe, having a conversation with their loved one. Mm-hmm. And as their oxygen saturation would be dropping and we'd be saying, you need to be intubated. Mm. I knew that that conversation over the phone would be the last conversation they would have with a loved one. They would tell me, oh, um, here's my brother, just make sure you contact him. And I knew that that was the last conversation that he would have. I knew that that was the conversation with me would be the last human person that they would contact. Mm. Not only is it death without dignity, it is incredibly scary. It's lonely. And to be cut off from the people that you love at the final hours of your life, um, to only have people with masks and visors and gowns around you mm-hmm. and the beep, beep, beeping of machines and, and seeing somebody else being resuscitated without success in a bed beside you and dead bodies around you, mm-hmm. it's a war zone. Yeah. It's, it's nothing short of a war zone. If I can paint a small picture of what I saw it was like to die of COVID, that's what it looks and sounds like. It's a war zone. That's what many hospitals are experiencing right now. And that is what it's like to die from the coronavirus in a hospital. Right now in Indiana, the state is facing, quote, critical ICU bed shortages along with personal shortages, end quote. Um, That's according to the chief medical officer, Lindsay Weaver. Politico reports that only three weeks after Republican Governor Eric Holcomb removed most COVID-related restrictions, officials have out, officials have called out, um, excuse me, officials have uh, essentially put an out call for volunteers to help staffing shortages in hard hit facilities near the Michigan and Kentucky borders. Yesterday on CNN, an epidemiologist described the situation in Indiana as a, quote, harrowing time, end quote. According to the Indiana Health Department, they have less than one third of ICU beds available right now. The Casper Tribune, uh, the Casper Star Tribune reports on the situation in Wyoming right now. Quote, Wyoming Medical Center, the state's largest hospital on Wednesday, nearly treated, nearly reached capacity and declared a, quote, code orange status to mobilize resources to meet this spike, which health officials say they don't anticipate wavering for at least the next month, end quote. On Friday, Wyoming broke its daily record for coronavirus infections. Nevertheless, on on the news of schooling, 86 students in Natrona County, Wyoming, have tested positive for the coronavirus. Also in Wyoming, um, this this Friday, an elementary school announced that they would be closing also 
until October the 28th because of multiple positive coronavirus tests. Yesterday, Michigan reported, um, yesterday Michigan surpassed 7,000 coronavirus deaths and cases are rising there as well. Despite that, President Trump decided to hold a huge big rally there yesterday. No mask, no social distancing. Nigel Panath, a professor of epidemiology at Michigan State University, said, quote, you may not see the, you may not, excuse me, quote, you may not yet see the rise in hospitalizations and deaths because it depends a lot on the age group getting it. But it doesn't always stay that way. Infected people go to the store. Next thing you know, some older person gets infected and it doesn't have to be an older person. Young people die. It happens. End quote. Situation right now in the coronavirus pandemic is dire. In New Mexico, Dr. Jason Mitchell, the chief medical officer for Presbyterian Healthcare Services, said, quote, We still have a chance to turn this around. We are not past the tipping point. But I will tell you, I think the tipping point is in the next 10 to 14 days. That's all we have as a community, not to move into something that's catastrophic. End quote. Essentially saying, Hey guys, come on, we can coalesce, we can do this together, we can wear masks, we can socially distance and take the necessary precautions to avoid hitting the tipping point. Mississippi has also been seeing a rise in coronavirus cases as well. And yesterday, um, it was just earlier this week that their Republican governor, Tate Reeves, essentially delivered an influential statement and warning to residents in Mississippi. He said, quote, important to remember that COVID-19 is not gone, exclamation mark. We've seen numbers increase over the past few weeks. Please stay watchful and protect yourself. We want to be cautious and, limit, and limited in using executive action. We're continuing on the, we're counting on the people of Mississippi to be wise and careful. Exclamation mark, end quote. Earlier this week, an entire high school of 600 students was ordered closed because of COVID-19 outbreaks throughout the state. In North Dakota, cases are rising, but Republican Governor Doug Burgum has refused to, has still refused to mandate masks. One doctor advocating for masks in the great state of North Dakota said, quote, I am now pleading, end quote. And these rise in coronavirus cases are not just happening in the state of North Carolina, excuse me, in the state of North Dakota, but this is happening all over the country. For instance, take a listen to what's happening right now. Um, here's the situation right now in Oklahoma. Worries about our surging numbers. One of the state's top docs once again calling on the governor to take action. News Force Cassandra Sweetman is live for us this evening, Cass. OU's chief COVID officer is saying relying on people to take personal responsibility simply is not as effective as a mandate that would save lives. We're not doing a good job right now, slowing the spread of this virus. Oklahoma surpassing 100,000 cases of COVID-19 this week, with a rolling seven-day average, the highest it's been since the beginning of the pandemic. OU's chief COVID officer, Dr. Dale Bradsler, saying without new measures, there's no indication the growing number of positive cases, hospitalizations, or deaths will slow. At the current pace, we'll be pretty close to 1,400 deaths by Thanksgiving unless we see a dramatic reduction in the number of deaths in our state. This week, more rural Oklahoma counties are starting to show higher positivity rates than urban counties. 
many areas of our state, I think people felt like they were protected because maybe they live far apart. Uh, they forget that you come together for religious services, for restaurants, to shop, and those are where people are getting infected. The governor has continued to reject a statewide mask mandate, saying he doesn't believe it's a, quote, one-size-fits-all solution. But Dr. Bratzler says he and other hospital health officials are feeling frustrated about the lack of intervention to prevent the spread of the disease. We can continue to go along and just keep waiting and hoping that we get a vaccine out, or we could do more aggressive things to slow the spread of the disease and to save people's lives. Now, even though not everyone would comply with a mask mandate, Dr. Bradster points out that even the state health department is reporting evidence that the mask mandates are working in cities where they exist. Reporting live, Cassandra Sweetman, Oklahoma's News 4. That was reporting from Oklahoma's News 4, as you just heard there. Um, We have also received some very unfortunate news out of Oklahoma. A man who tested positive for the coronavirus back in June has now been reinfected and is fighting for his life. The status quo um, of this pandemic is not good. Um, For instance, in Montana, they are now calling for help as coronavirus cases overwhelm the healthcare system. Here's the lead from NPR.org. Quote, with coronavirus infections five times higher than a month ago, Montana's hospitals are scrambling and the state is having a hard time finding enough healthcare workers. Cases are rising exponentially. This is not just happening in Montana. This is not just happening in New York or, or in, in North Dakota. This is happening in some parts just all over the country. I mean, this is the status quo right now. I mean, I could go on. There are many other states where they are seeing a rise in infections right now. In fact, this Wednesday, there will be a special report on our YouTube channel about the coronavirus and the current situation right now. I mean, it's it's just dire. I remember when Florida was going through the worst of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, apparently that has now happened again. Yesterday, Florida reported its highest coronavirus numbers in the past two months. According to this reporting by MiamiCBSLocal.com, quote, Florida reported its highest coronavirus numbers in two months with another uptick in new infections Saturday, surging to more than 4,000 cases. The state also reported nearly 90 more deaths with excuse me, which pushed officials, which pushed its official death toll to nearly 16,000 Floridians dead since March. Since the outbreak began, Florida has recorded more than 752,000 coronavirus cases. And now they are seeing an uptick. Meanwhile, we have just received an update, actually some news that um, we are continuing to follow right now as of today. Um, Speaker Nancy Pelosi is giving the White House 48 hours to reach coronavirus stimulus deal before the presidential election. As you all know, we are 16 days away from the presidential election. Um, This has been something that has been continuing to happen right now in the House. Uh, Last week, the president said that, no, 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 we're cutting this off. We're not doing any stimulus deals until after the election. I'm not talking with the Democrats right now. The president then um, essentially walked that back. And now apparently um, Speaker Pelosi has given them 48 hours. Speaker Pelosi saying, quote, the 48 only relates to if we want to get it done before the election, which we do. 
quote, we're saying to them, we have to freeze the design on some of these things. Are we going with it or not? What is the language? I'm optimistic because, again, we've been back and forth on all of this. According to CNBC, quote, stimulus talks have dragged on for um, for months, even as the coronavirus spreads across the U.S. and millions of Americans remain unemployed. Pelosi and, excuse me, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and um, Secretary of Treasury Steven Mnuchin have made some progress in their, nego- in the, in their negotiations, which the most recent call last night resulting in, quote, some encouraging news on testing, end quote, according to Pelosi's Deputy Chief of Staff, Drew Hamill. The two still have different have differences on a comprehensive plan for COVID-19 testing, contact tracing, and, quote, measures to address the virus, the virus's disproportionate impact on communities of color, which we have seen throughout the pandemic. So that is a story that we'll keep an eye on as, as it looks like progress is now being made now. Speaker Nancy Pelosi giving the White House now 48 hours to to make to. 48 hours to compromise. What's the deal here? What are we doing? Meanwhile, Twitter has now removed um, Dr. Atlas. Um, Apparently, uh, Dr. I've talked about him on the show before. Dr. Scott Atlas. He is this Fox News doctor that the president um, is now that he is now advising the president for some reason. He's only a radiologist. He's not necessarily a physician or an infectious disease doctor. But he is advising the president and saying that, yeah, Mr. President, herd immunity is a great thing. Twitter has now removed his tweet. Um, he is under he undermined the importance of wearing masks, saying, quote, he said in this tweet, quote, mask work? No. End quote. Yesterday, the United States recorded 70,000 coronavirus cases. That's the highest it's been since July. Earlier this week, the Trump administration admitted that herd immunity was their plan. If you recall, I reported on that last month. Um, They have been reporting on it for a while. Uh, Excuse me, they have been supporting that, that theory for a while. Only this week, they finally admitted that, yeah, this is what we're actually doing. This is what we're going to pursue. Millions of Americans will die if this ludicrous plan is advanced. Right now, more than 8 million Americans have the coronavirus, and more than 220,000 Americans are dead. Today is October 18th, 2020. The CDC projects that by the end of this month, 233,000 Americans will be dead. The coronavirus pandemic began back in back in January. Back in January, the first case of the coronavirus was was it was diagnosed in Washington State as this person is walking in, and the doctor just said, "It's it's begun." Back in January, the president knew this information. Why are we still here? Two hundred and thirty-three thousand of us will be dead by the end of this month. Herd immunity is not a plan or a national health strategy. Herd immunity is preposterous and it is dangerously reckless. This is what they're pursuing. We've got much more ahead tonight. 
Eyes open, heads up. Stay focused, please. Last week on Wednesday, tenants in Lake Charles, Louisiana, were ousted um, from their apartments. Uh, this, of course, is in the aftermath of Hurricane Laura and Hurricane Delta. Here's how Teresa Schmidt describes this at kplctv.com. Quote, imagine you thought you made it through the hurricanes. Your apartment looks fine, and the next thing you know, your release, excuse me, your lease is terminated. End quote. Many people are now finding themselves homeless because they're being forced to find a new place to live. According to this reporting, the Ridge Complex in the villa, which houses senior citizens, is is now being said that is excuse me is now being told um, the, those senior citizens have now been notified that they must quote get out. End quote. That's how Ms. Schmidt puts it in her reporting. Um, the article also entails that residents were given letters. Residents in Lake Charles, Louisiana, were given letters saying that their belongings will be disposed if they do not leave by the end of this month. One resident said, quote, my apartment is livable. It's livable. We can't find storage units. We can't find rental properties. Some of us don't even have family here. Our kids are here. School is here. Our jobs are here. It's really hard. I need four bedrooms. I have four kids and myself. That's five of us. End quote. Uh, this resident said that she is trying to remain optimistic during such a difficult time. She says, quote, as of right now, I really don't have a plan. I'm just really taking it by day. So basically, I'm just walking by faith, not by sight, end quote. The infuriating part about this is that many people's apartments are fine. I mean, as you as you just heard this resident, she said, my apartment's livable. Nevertheless, this is still happening. Yesterday, we learned um, that in Pensacola, Florida, volunteers came together to clean up the damage from Hurricane Sally at a Veterans, excuse me, at Veterans Memorial Park. Yesterday, this was reported um, on the progress of Hurricane Sally so far. Listen. And it has been one month since Hurricane Sally made landfall. Many Northwest Florida are still picking up the pieces after the Category 2 storm came ashore in Gulf Shores, Alabama. Channel 3's Danielle Apollinar gives us an update tonight on the county's roads to recovery. A month later, and it's still very apparent as storm tore through northwest Florida. Debris is still piled high and homes are destroyed. While the reminders are still visible, so are the signs of progress. Scambia County Administrator Janice Gilley says they've picked up 2 million cubic yards of storm debris. Keep in mind, a typical dump truck can hold 10 to 14 cubic yards of material. For those that have not had it picked up, it doesn't feel so great, but I promise you we're coming. Gilly says they're right on track to complete debris pickup in the next 60 days, despite underestimating the amount. We estimated 1.8 million cubic yards with the Army Corps of Engineers. So I expect we're going to be very close to 2.7 to 3 million cubic yards of debris by the time we're done. Over in Okaloosa County, a spokesperson says they've picked up about 20,000 cubic yards of debris and have about 10,000 left. Santa Rosa County picking up more than 200,000 of the more than 1 million estimated cubic yards of debris. They're letting their citizens keep track of their progress through an online dashboard. Relief in the form of individual FEMA assistance is also being dispersed throughout our viewing area. Over $10 million just for Escambia County residents. Uh, we have se about 17,000 residents that have applied. Through the tough times, lessons were also learned. With Hurricane Sally making the quick shift to our area, Gilly says they'll continue to push 
preparation. Any storm in the Gulf is a storm that we're going to be prepared for because it's a threat to Escambia County. There are several resources available that can help keep you up to date on recovery efforts in your county. We have those links on our website, WEARTV.com. I'm Danielle Polinar reporting. Meanwhile, there is some sort of exciting news, um, some sort of interesting and hopeful and positive news. Um, we learned this on, I believe this is Thursday of this week. Let me check here. Yes, this was Thursday of this week that we learned this, Thursday, October 15th. Um, a man sheltered 300 dogs from Hurricane Delta in his home in Mexico, according to the, according to the Associated Press, quote, Right here, quote, as the dangerous Hurricane Delta closed in on Mexico's Yucantan, excuse me, I believe this is Yucantan um, Peninsula, Ricardo Pimentel, um, Pimentel opened his home to about 300 dogs. There were plenty of other critters, too. Dozens of cats were harbored in his, in his son's room. His daughter's room served as a refuge for chicks, bunnies, and even a hedgehog. A patio became a haven for a flock of sheep. Not surprisingly, the house smelled terrible, he says, but it was worth it. All survived the storm. Quote, it doesn't matter if the house is dirty. It can be cleaned. The things that, the things they, excuse me, the things they broke can be fixed or bought again. But what's beautiful is to see them happy, healthy, and safe, without wounds, and with the possibility of being adopted. End quote. Um, some other ins positive news that we have received of just yesterday is that request for federal assistance related to Hurricane Delta was approved for five Louisiana parishes. According to the article by KLFY.com, quote, the governor's office has announced that President Donald Trump has approved Governor Edwards's request for federal assistance related to Hurricane Delta. So that has just transpired this week. According to, uh, according to this article, um, excuse me, according to the governor, Governor John Bell Edwards in Louisiana, quote, this federal assistance will go a long way in rebuilding our damaged parishes and helping get people recovered and back to their lives, end quote. As I reported on the show just last weekend with Dr. Twyla Dell, this is a result of climate change. We're going to have more reporting on that later on. But this is what we are seeing right now. The damage from Hurricane Delta is just absolutely devastating. Tennessean reporter Brindley Hindman, she actually went out. She spoke to residents about that damage, and she was on the ground during that time. And she joins me next. Stay with us. Hey, Google. More than 100 billion words are translated every day. Lift your hand. Thank you very much for your help. Words about food. <laughs> Words about friendship. About sport. About belief. About fear. Words that can hurt and sometimes divide. But every day, the most translated words in the world are how are you? Thank you. And I love you. Joining me now for the interview is Brinley Heineman. She's a reporter for the Tennessee and Ms. Heineman, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be back. Um, so we know that 
Louisiana and other parts of the Gulf Coast have been hit by hurricanes before. We have had Hurricane Laura and we've had Tropical Storm Bed and some other hurricanes. Um, this damage from Hurricane Delta appears to have left lots of lots of lots of damage. Um, what do we expect the time that that's going to take to clean up and families um, getting um, aid? That is an excellent question. And I think that that is the question, right? When <laughs> are they going to recover from this? Um, like you said, we had Laura six weeks ago, and now we have Delta that hammered the exact same area of Southwest Louisiana. Um, Delta, the damage that it did to that area, it undid a lot of the progress that people had made from Laura. So for some people, they're starting over at square one. Um, I know from talking to residents in Southwest Louisiana, specifically mm -hmm. the Lake Charles area, they relied a lot on government resources following Laura. And I know they're gonna be relying on those same resources Sources now that they're dealing with the outcome of Delta as well. Mm. Um, we know that Hurricane Laura approximately is now going to cost $1.6 billion. Um, is Louisiana coping with this financially? Are they dealing with this well now that they have another storm? I'm sorry, can you please repeat that? Um, is How how is Louisiana dealing with this? I mean, they've just been hit by Hurricane Laura, um, which has, has a, just a huge um, price on it now in terms of damage and now paying for that. Um, how do they expect to pay for this storm as well? That's a great question. Um, I think that, and I want to be clear, I, so I, as you said, I work for the Tennessean, which is part of the USA Today Network. So my role in covering Delta was a lot of on the ground speaking with residents. It wasn't so much focusing on the long-term recovery efforts, mm. but if I had to guess, I would expect it to be similar to what they've relied on with Laura. Um, I know FEMA has come in. I know the Red Cross has come in. And in fact, I think the Red Cross actually hasn't left some parts of Louisiana. So I mm. think that it's gonna be more of the same that we've seen with Laura. When you were speaking to residents um, from, when you were speaking to residents who have been hit by this, how are they coping with this? I mean, we've just had Laura, as you stated, we've had some other tropical storms and hurricanes as well. Are they afraid that another storm may come and are these, do they have anywhere to stay? So when I went into Lake Charles, one thing that blew me away was the resilience of the people I met. Hmm. Uh, even though this is a way of life for people in Southwest Louisiana, um, and they've been dealt a really bad hand in 2020, they have not let that get to them. Uh, the people I spoke to were hopeful, they were optimistic for the future. Um, to quote someone, they said they were ready to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. Mm -hmm. And one thing that really struck me was the faith a lot of people had in a higher power. They believed uh, that God was going to carry them through this. And that mm -hmm. faith is really what sustained them during this time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely remarkable. Um, one person saying here in your reporting, quote, um, this person saying that they have lost everything and uh, we saw some images of just their house just completely eradicated um as far as the reconstruction of this are they i know that you say that they have they have lots of faith and resiliency but is there a, a current place where they could stay or are there like certain shelters being put up for them to stay in so from my understanding, there are some shelters. Those are mostly full from Laura. So what mm. I saw happen from my on-ground reporting, some people actually did not come back to the area after Laura. Um, they have relocated. They're staying with family elsewhere, friends elsewhere. But for people who did return to their homes from Laura and now they're dealing with the damage from Delta, some people are staying in place if they can. 
they're relocating um, and they're just trying to pick themselves back up. I think it really is a case by case basis. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think it's important to highlight that some people never came back after Laura and this Delta, this is a death knell for a lot of folks in Southwest Louisiana. Mm. There was reporting by um, Bloomberg News that indicated that um, one person who owned a restaurant after Hurricane Laura hit um, Louisiana and other parts saying she said that there was nothing there, there was nothing left. Um, is that the case right now in Louisiana as they're trying to recover? Some people are certainly dealing with that. Um, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, I met during my reporting, I met a man whose home was utterly destroyed. Um, so some people, they don't have anything to come back to. Um, but as I traveled down towards the coast and I went through the Cameron Parish, there were people who were hit very badly there who they have nothing to come back to, but yet they're still coming back because for them, that parish is their home. They have deep roots that stretch back generations. And so I think a lot of it does boil down to personal finances. And it's a turning point for a lot of people in Southwest Louisiana as they decide the fate of their future, the fate of their lineage. Do they wanna continue living in Southwest Louisiana and dealing with this, especially as we see climate change worsen and we see these storms become more common, um, is this something that they and their families are prepared to deal with for the upcoming future? Mm. I had a, a doctor on, on the show, I believe it was last Sunday to talk about climate change as well um, and the storms and all these simultaneous wildfires. Are they concerned that if another storm were to hit that they would essentially not be prepared or are they concerned that these storms just are continuing to come and come and they're not having time to, to, seek, to seek assistance or to seek preparation? So to answer the first part of your question, in my experience speaking with residents, preparation was something that they had said. They mm. had all their boxes checked. A lot of families had generators. They had extra water, they had extra food. Because hurricanes are such a way of life for people there, it's kind of a secondhand knowledge and it's something that they prepare for. Um, and I'm sorry, <laughs> can you, I'm sorry, I need to re-answer that because I actually forgot what you said secondly. I'm sorry, <laughs> can you please repeat um, that? <laughs> given people's, um, are they concerned about seeking assistance um, if another storm were to hit again? And, you know, and I think that is something that in one of the stories I did, it was really heartbreaking because what happens is as soon as some of these people get back up on their feet and they rebuild, almost as soon as they get that squared away, another storm comes. Mm -hmm. So it's becoming almost like this whack-a-mole, right? Like as soon as they get it under control, another thing pops up. And mm -hmm. I think that is the exact problem that a lot of people are facing. And it's the, the driving question of if they want to stay or not is, do they have the resources to continue rebuilding time after time? Mm -hmm. um, when I was in the Cameron Parish, I visited two Catholic churches there that have the share, the same reverend, the same uh, priest. Mm -hmm. And this is the fifth time one of those churches has been destroyed by a hurricane. Every time since the community has come together to rebuild the church. Mm. But now because of all the damage in the Cameron Parish, the fate is really unknown. And it's up in the air if that church community will be able to rebuild a physical building. The, the death toll from Hurricane Delta has now reached three people. Uh, given your experience on the ground and your reporting on the ground and speaking to residents, do you expect that death toll to rise, um, essentially given the, the catastrophe from Hurricane Delta? I think that is a really interesting question. Um, when we compare it to Laura, I think roughly half the, de the deaths from Laura were actually because of carbon and carbon monoxide poisoning from people mm -hmm. using generators. So one thing I did notice when I went down there for Delta was I noticed public officials 
putting out statements and warnings on how to properly use generators. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's more of a heightened awareness around that. Um, from my understanding, there weren't uh, many casualties associated with the storm itself. So I think now it'll just be those lingering effects. All right. Once again, my guest is Brinley Heineman. She's a reporter for the Tennessee. And Ms. Heineman, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Oh, I wanted to ask you, uh, Liz and I are going to do some work around the house. Do you know any good contractors? I might. Oh, that's great. Can you check their qualifications? Make sure they have great reviews and research the average price for the job. Oh, and book them on Wednesday. Actually, make it Friday. It went in the water. You can't expect your neighbors to do everything HomeAdvisor can. So for a better way to get home projects done right, just ask HomeAdvisor. Earlier this week, Supreme Court nominee Judge Amy Coney Barrett, um, she took questions from senators as she's as the confirmation hearings were beginning. Um, there, This is one of the very powerful moments that took place in that committee hearing on, on Monday. I want to play this clip for you. I'm not sure if you've heard this, but this is Senator Amy Klobuchar. Um, the full clip is actually 10 minutes, but I'm actually going to play just about one minute of it. Listen to this. It's very, very powerful. I doubt that it will be a brilliant cross-examination that's going to change this judge's trajectory this week. No, it is you. It is you calling Republican senators and telling them enough is enough, telling them it is personal, telling them they have their priorities wrong. So do it. And it is you voting even when they try to do everything to stop you. It is you making your own blueprint for the future instead of crying defeat. So do it. This isn't Donald Trump's country. It is yours. This shouldn't be Donald Trump's judge. It should be yours. Quote, this shouldn't be Donald Trump's judge. This should be yours. End quote. Once again, Senator Amy Klobuchar speaking there um, in that congressional hearing, in that Senate hearing um, for the Supreme Court confirmation hearings of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Just absolutely an influential moment in that room. Um, but here are some other highlights that transpired this week. Um, take a listen. Bear with me for a couple questions. Have you seen the George Floyd video? I have. What impact did it have on you? Um, Senator, as you might imagine, given that I have two black children, that was very, very personal for my family. My children, to this point in their lives, have had the benefit of growing up in a cocoon where they have not yet experienced hatred or violence. I'd like to ask you, as an originalist who obviously has a passion for history, I can't imagine that you could separate the two, to reflect on the history of this country, where are we today when it comes to the issue of race? I think it is an entirely uncontroversial and obvious statement given, as we just talked about the George Floyd video, that racism persists in our country. As to putting my finger on the nature of the problem, you know, whether, as you say, it's just outright or systemic racism, or how to tackle the prop, the issue of making it better. Those things, you know, are policy questions. They're hotly contested policy contest, uh, questions that have been in the news and discussed all summer. And I want to run through a few examples. So Brown v. Board of Education, as we know, that holds that the 14th Amendment prohibits states from segregating schools on the basis of race. 
So um, is that precedent? Um, yes. That can't be overruled? Well, that is precedent. Um, mm -hmm. And as I think I said in that same article, it's super precedent. People consider it to be on that very small list of things that are so widely established and agreed upon by everyone. Mm -hmm. Calls for its overruling simply don't exist. Okay. Is Roe a super precedent? How would you define super precedent? I, I, I actually, I might have thought someday I'd be sitting in that chair. I'm not. I'm up here, so I'm asking okay, you. Okay. Well, people so. use super precedent differently. Okay. The way that it's used in the scholarship and the way that I was using it in the article that you're reading from was to define cases that are so well settled that no political actors and no people seriously push for their overruling. And I'm answering a lot of questions about Roe, which I think indicates that Roe doesn't fall in that category. As Richard Fallon from Harvard said, Roe is not a super precedent because calls for its overruling have never ceased, but that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled. It just means that it doesn't fall on the small handful of cases like Marbury versus Madison and Brown versus the board that no one questions anymore. Obviously, there are many other clips that I can play, um, but those are just some of the highlights this week. Um, that was wrapped up. That Those wrapped up recordings were wrapped up by NBC News, so just credit to them, courtesy to NBC News, um, for sharing that on YouTube. We'll have lots more of these, these clips in the description of this episode. Actually, you can just go on YouTube and type in uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett's Supreme Court confirmation hearing, like the highlights of it, and like each individual news outlet will have their individual highlights of it. Um, but it it was an interesting week. Also, um, it got to the point where Republican Senator um, Sass um, asked her the first amendment. Like, what are the rudimentary things that are in the, what are, what are our rudimentary freedoms that's listed in the first amendment? Here's what Judge Amy Coney Barrett said. Um, what are the five freedoms of the first amendment? Speech, religion, Press, assembly, speech, press, religion, assembly. I don't know. What am I missing? Re redress or protest. Okay. There's one essential freedom that she missed there, which is protest. It's something that all Americans have a fundamental right to do. It's something that's been taking place this summer, taking place this summer, and still taking place right now. There are protests against Judge Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearing right now. There have been protests this summer against the racial injustice and the racial inequality that has been that has been transpiring. That is a fundamental right. And to forget protest in the Constitution, I mean, President Trump has showed his strong aversion toward protest. I'm not hinting at anything here that maybe uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett talked about this with President Trump and leave out protest. But this is the Supreme Court nominee that President Trump has nominated, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. We are 16 days away from the presidential election. The Senate is set to vote to confirm her to the Supreme Court on October 22nd. It looks like she will be confirmed. Keep your eyes on the story. We got much more ahead. Meet the Ninja Foodie Air Fry Oven. Make fast, family-sized meals in the time it takes some ovens to preheat. With Ninja's superheated air, you can air fry for extra crispy, guilt-free, delicious results. And because it's a Ninja Foodie, it can do things that no other oven can. And even flip up and out of the way. 
the Ninja Foodi Air Fry Oven, the oven that crisps and flips away. In 1910, this gargantuan wildfire called the Big Burn, um, it, it's actually, it was one of the nation's largest wildfires. It was an apocalyptic blaze that burned an area the size of Connecticut in a weekend. Just a weekend. According to Timothy, excuse me, according, according to TimothyEganBooks.com, quote, No living person had ever seen a fire with the ferocity, speed, and destructive power of the Big Burn of 1910, end quote. Before 1910, wildfires were treated as a community issue. Most of the time, they were ignored or welcomed as a way to clear to clear land for farming and herding, um, says Stephen Penn, a professor emeritus of environmental history at Arizona State University and author of Years of Fires, the story of the great fires of 1910. End quote. According to NBC News, the fire of 1910 changed that. It wasn't the biggest or the deadliest wildfire in the United States at that point, but a young federal agency, the U.S. Forest Service, had seen its political fortunes rise just five years before when it took control of the country's vast forest lands, Pine said, and the fire traumatized the agency. It responded with a set of practices that reflected the progressive, excuse me, conservation-minded politics of the day, end quote. The big burn was just absolutely devastating. More than 3 million acres were burned, and it was just, it was catastrophic. About 85 people died, 78 of them were firefighters. Here's a video from the American Express PBS YouTube channel. Take a listen to their explanation on the big fire of 1910 and what it means, uh, and actually what it meant back then and how it changed how we handle wildfires as a nation. Big Burn destroys an area the size of Connecticut in 36 hours. We've never had anything close to it. It was an inferno that not only transformed the landscape of the West, but forever changed the nation's attitudes about its public lands. The great fires in the Northern Rockies hit the U.S. Forest Service in ways that rippled through society. The Army call out, the political fights over strategy, it's all slammed together in one giant package. That made them great. It was a story of arrogance and pride, a belief that nature could be managed and fire brought under control. There was an attitude that if there's something wrong in the forest, we can go in there and fix it. It was almost as if wildfire was this beast that we can actually hunt down and eradicate. The selfless courage of a small group of men would inspire the nation, but questions would linger about whether their sacrifice had all been in vain. We can celebrate them as people of their time and era who played out fully the roles that the culture ascribed to them, and yet it meant that it would have been better if we'd done something else. It's a time of catastrophe, a time of change, a time of coming up with a new vision. If you look at the landscape, the scars of 1910 are still there. 
finally this month, um, after months and years, actually, of saying ludicrous things about California, telling them they need to sweep the forest, uh, President Trump has finally reversed that, and he has now rendered California disaster relief. According to Vox.com, quote, as California battles historic wildfires, Governor Gavin Newsom is fighting for federal aid. The article, quote, President Donald Trump approved a disaster declaration for California on Friday, clearing the way for the state to receive federal aid as it continues to battle a series of historic wildfires. Usually that would be unremarkable as of Saturday, but the FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, listed 98 major disaster declarations this year, including in California. But Friday's declaration by Trump comes only after his Thursday decision to deny federal aid to the state. Though California has suffered five of the six largest wildfires in in recorded state history in recent weeks, including a, quote, Giga fire, end quote, the August complex fire, which has already burned more than 1 million acres, FEMA said in a statement Friday on to CNN. That's California's, quote, early September fires were such were not such of severity and magnitude to exceed the combined capabilities of the state affected local governments, voluntary agencies and other responding federal agencies, end quote. In other words, those fires that transpired last month were not big enough, were not big enough for FEMA to come in and assist them. California Governor Gavin Newsom responded to this announcement by tweeting, quote, we are appealing this. Uh, and followed that message with a call with Trump of Republican lawmakers and, excuse me, Republican lawmakers also reportedly put pressure on the president with White House, excuse me, with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who represents California's 23rd um, district in Congress and state Senator Adrius Borges, whose district was affected by the Creek Fire making appeals. Um, So that apparently has just taken place this week, as finally, after President Trump's lots of saying lots of ludicrous things about the situation in California, he has now approved um, aid for California. So they will now be getting that. In Colorado, the situation there is just absolutely dire. Um, We are keeping our eyes on what is appearing to be just a disaster right now. Um, Right now in Cal, excuse me, right now in Colorado, evacuations are evacuations have been ordered uh, in California and in Utah as crews are battling a new blaze. Here is the headline at the Washington Post today: "Quote: Colorado wildfire erupts amid deepening drought, forcing evacuations in Boulder County." End quote. In Utah, we are keeping our eyes on this new fire start in Utah in Summit County Saturday. As I talked about at the top of the show, Utah is seeing a rise in coronavirus infection. So having a a simultaneous disaster like a wildfire, that would just be absolutely terrible. According to this article, KSL.com, quote, here are the latest updates on wildfires burning in Utah as of this Saturday. Um, They provide you the updates right there. I mean, it's just a disaster. Um, The Fire Cannon Fire um, in Utah has grown to 1,600 acres. Right now, that was as of reporting as of yesterday. Um, That number could have risen. I mean, we're keeping our eyes on right now in California, Colorado, and Utah as these blazes are continuing to rise right now. I mean, here's reporting from CNN on Colorado and Utah wildfires. Quote, 
Blazes roaring through Colorado and Utah have pushed more people from their homes and caused damage that officials have not yet been able to access. Two wildfires are believed to have broken out in Utah on Saturday, burning more than 3,000 acres in less than a day, according to post on Twitter from Utah Fire Info. The range fire burning just outside the city of Orem has prompted the evacuation of about 10 homes as it burned 1,500 acres. Um, it is 0% contained, the post said. Meanwhile, the fire cannon fire, as I just reported, is estimated to be burning about 1,600 acres, but it is not currently threatening any structures. The cause of both of these wildfires are under investigation, but the fire cannon fire is believed to be human-caused, according to the post. End quote. We will keep you updated on these stories. We're going to um, put some more of these article descriptions. We're going to put some more of these article links on our website on the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Uh, but this is the current situation right now, and it is absolutely dire. Um, another thing that Judge Amy Coney Barrett was pressed on this week was climate change, which is something that we've been continuing to keep our eyes on as a story. Um, here's what she said when she was pressed by Senator Kamala Harris, also vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris, on climate change. Here's what she said. Do you accept that COVID-19 is infectious? Um, I, I think, yes, I do accept that COVID-19 is infectious, that that's something of which I feel like, you know, we could say you take judicial notice of. It's an obvious fact, yes. Do you accept that smoking causes cancer? I'm not sure exactly where you're going with this, but, you know, the, the notice that it's smoking just a question. The question is what it is. You can answer it if you believe um, yes or no. <laughs> Senator Harris, yes, every package of cigarettes warns that smoking causes cancer. And do you believe that climate change is happening and is threatening um, the air we breathe and the water we drink? Um, Senator, again, I was wondering where you were going with that. Um, you have asked me a series of questions like, that are completely uncontroversial, like whether COVID-19 is infectious, whether smoking causes cancer, and then trying to analogize that to eliciting an opinion on me that is a very contentious matter, opinion from me that is on a very contentious matter of public debate. And I will not do that. I will not express a view on a matter of public policy, especially one that is politically controversial because that's inconsistent with the judicial role, as I have explained. Thank you. Thank you, Judge Barrett. And, and you've made your point clear that you believe it's a debatable point. Climate change is not controversial, nor is it politically controversial. As I talked about on the on my last episode with uh, with Dr. Twyla Dell, climate change has become sort of this partisan thing. It should be a bipartisan issue. Climate change is not controversial, nor is it debatable. It is happening. And there's no reason to deny it because the science is confirming it. But among other things, I told you that we would we would look for that in the hearing, and we found that clip. And yeah, climate change, um, it is not debatable. It is not controversial. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. I really appreciate it. Um, we will see you again this Saturday on the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Also, as I said at the top of the show, um, this Wednesday on our YouTube channel, the Jeremiah Patterson Show, we will have a special we we'll have special reporting actually throughout the week on the coronavirus pandemic, as the situation here in the United States is just dire. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day, and we'll see you. We'll see you this Saturday.